G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. We're back onto Australian history. It's back in our sights again as we unpack the fascinating details and including not just the odd historical story, but political, social and economic insights into those forces that moulded Australia's development. And with special focus today on amazing people, a couple known as the Chisholms and the inspirational Aboriginal inventor and preacher David Unipon. We're also going to be touching on Australia's very first Christmas Day. That you will not want to miss. And as you'll know, in a very secularised age that we live in now, revisionists are trying to minimise Australia's Christian foundations. So we're back today with historian and political strategist Dr Christopher Reynolds. His historic research uses original documents, government letters, articles and legislation to reveal some compelling propositions. You'll be able to read about those things in his new book, which is called What a Capital Idea, Australia, 1770 to 1901. As an historian, Christopher was first listed in the International Who's Who Historical Society in 2006. He's published in politics, business and education. As a political strategist, he was even awarded a commendation from a former U.S. president, Ronald Reagan, having held White House appointments and worked on several U.S. political campaigns. He's been a school teacher, a university professor, business manager and political strategist, and in Australia, Christopher Reynolds was a former executive officer for the New South Wales Minister for Public Works and was executive director for the World Trade Centre in Sydney. And I might say a special welcome back to 2020 to you, Christopher Reynolds. Thank you very much, Neil. Hey, Christopher, uh, we've had a couple of conversations already about your book, What a Capital Idea. Uh, you've got a momentum which is so significant. Uh, you've got some launches that are coming up uh, into 2024. Give us an idea as to how things are progressing with your book. Yes, the book is being incredibly well received at the sort of, well, I have to say, the highest levels of government. I can't believe that it, it, it is. The opportunities in this past six months, I couldn't have arranged them. And yet here I am uh, within minutes of attending a, an event, giving a copy of the book of Peter Dutton, who has this week agreed to do the first or the second book launch uh, that we're planning for next year in Brisbane on March 5. Um, so we're looking forward to that. And we're just thinking it's going to be the Brisbane Club, but we'll wait and see. Mayor Tate. Uh, received a copy only last week, and he was so excited he thought Christmas had come early when I handed him the book. That's Mayor Tom Tate on the Gold Tom Coast. Tom Tate on the Gold Coast. And he he's agreed to um, to do the, the first of the uh, book launches here on the Gold Coast. Uh, Erica Betts, in, uh, who is the former leader of the opposition and Deputy Prime Minister, um, he's um, waiting enthusiastically to do something in Hobart. Um and then um, uh, Tony Abbott, I'm very pleased to say, picked up a copy of the book on the table in uh, Peter Credlin's 
lounge room and said, what's this? Um, because it, I sent him a copy, but it hadn't got through his staff as, as uh, these things happen. And he's fallen in love with it. He wants January to go through and read it all. He says he's old-fashioned. He doesn't want to read it on the computer or have me brief him. So um, in January, he's going to read it, and then we'll plan a launch in Sydney. Well, there'll be encouragement, and I'll tell you how you can get a hold of this book as we go through our conversation. The book is called What a Capital Idea, Australia, 1770 Mm -hmm. to 1901. And some might be saying, well, what's different about your history book? Christopher Reynolds, uh, to the other history books that I've read about Australia. Uh, what is it that sets yours apart, do you think? Well, I, th- I think because of my experience working in Washington, and I am the only Australian ever to work in the US Senate, the Congress, and be senior professional staff, it was my ability that got me there. I didn't know anybody. It was my ability to write, to read, to understand. Now, when I came at this project of Australian history, it was to, to confess um, to do some research to write a children's book on Australian history. But I thought, I said to the person who, um, who asked me to do this, I said, well, it's been a few years, let me get back in and do the research. But once I started, I was not interested in secondary sources. I, couldn't have, I could not have handed secondary source material to anyone in the White House, and I certainly wasn't going to do it for myself. So I went looking for original legislation, letters if it was sort of written recently i wasn't interested i went back as far i got you know documents from 1911 and 1850s and the earliest document i found is 300 years old the elizabeth act and yet that act influenced australia's history as we know it today 300 years ago and it was the act to do with transportation and the convicts and we've never referred to it so it was, it, the book is unique because of the quality of the research. The other thing is that I came at it with, with a perspective of saying, what's going to make this different? I'm interested in the money trail. In politics, it's shown me the money. If I walked into a senator and said, I've got this great policy, he would automatically say, show me the money. How much are going to cost? The other thing is what the Germans would call, when I studied theology, was called Sitz in Leben, which is situation in life. What is the actual context for, for what you're seeing and doing and, and what was written? So I was keen to look at the context, which then produced um, all these stories about these wonderful people in the context of which things were written. And when we talk context, uh, this is interesting because we find ourselves in a context now in the 21st century where there is a rising secularization in Australia and a revisionist approach to our history. And so you've got people who are wanting to revise out of our history those Christian roots. And I wonder whether you've got a reflection here and, uh, you know, just maybe an overall view. Um, How do you feel about the fact that in in a secularised Australia people are trying to minimise our Christian heritage? And what comes to mind for you when you think of those things that have shaped Australia? Well, two things come to mind. Firstly, in, in my reading, I came across a book by um, Stuart McIntyre, who was a professor at Melbourne University. I think that's where he was. And in his preface, he says, if we deny our British heritage, we will become a people without a soul. 
And that is what has happened. In denying our British and our Christian heritage, we have become a people searching for meaning and searching for a soul. And it is, as far as I'm concerned, absolutely ridiculous that people are running back and looking at a Stone Age society, the Aboriginal society as it was, and thinking that's going to give us meaning in the world today. I mean, it's just a ridiculous idea. But it's this concept that that we have, have created a vacuum for ourselves. The other issue that you raise is this business of of, um, the revisionist trying to write things in. Well, when I studied theology, if you decided you're going to look back at at, uh, the Bible and you wanted to interpret something from your perspective, it was called eisegesis, not exegesis where you read things out of meaning, but you're putting things back. So I'm afraid I still have that concept. It is illegitimate for an academic to actually decide I'm going to write something in to the book or interpret it from my perspective. and But that's what's happening. It's not legitimate to actually write back into. My book says this is what happened. Three hundred, There are 300 references, but I read more than 600 documents before I would put my name to this book. Now, we want to talk about a number of identities in Australian history today, and I'm also wanting to talk to you about that very first Christmas. I'm going to hold off on the Christmas for a moment. While we just mentioned these other identities, I want to talk to you about the Chisholms, talking about Caroline Chisholm and Archibald Chisholm, her husband, and also to talk about that just incredible and amazing Aboriginal identity David Unipon. Let's start with the Chisholms because uh, they didn't arrive on our shores until the mid-19th century, about 1838. Uh, but they made such a huge impact and uh, were rock solid in their faith. Uh, give us your insights here into just the importance of recognising some of these early identities and how they shaped, as you start to uh, in, uh, allude to, the soul of Australia. Uh, Carolyn was um, born um, to a, a, a simple a family. Her father was a pig farmer in England, a Catholic family. Her father died young. She was one of a number of children. I think it was six. Um, and it wasn't until um, she was um, around the age of 21 that she met and married uh, Archibald Chisholm. Now, he was a, um, a commander, a, a soldier, I think a captain, in the British East India Company and was serving um, in what's uh, Chennai or what was, uh, wasn't Membai, but I'll come to it, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. where they were. But um, So she went out to India, but, but could see that the children of the expats, the British out there, were in need of an education. So a woman in her 20s started a school for the children of uh, the British in, um, uh, in Chennai, I'll come to what it was, um, so when, um, but he got sick, and so they gave him leave to come to Australia to, for his health. When the Chisholms came here in uh, in eighteen thirty eight, excuse me. <clears throat> again, they <coughs> they noticed the incredible poor condition that the women were in who came to Australia. Now there were twice as many men as women at that time. Um, but when the women came out, they were, they were instantly, most of them were instantly snatched up for wives or domestic service, but there were quite a few that, that couldn't, didn't, uh, were in poor condition, and so they started to look after them, provide them with housing and food, and the, the service just grew. 
So within the next seven years, with the pair of them putting all their money, services, what houses they could get, um, resources together, they looked after seven. They looked after eleven thousand people in those next seven years. Um, can I say some more? You're sure. Right, yeah. Okay. Well, we're on. A, we're on a roll here with this with this couple. Now they were Catholics, and, it, and the, the the atmosphere in Australia at the time was still somewhat divided in our denominations. It was sort of, um, you know, I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Congregational, I'm a Baptist, you know. And so people really held on to those dogmas that separated them. Um, and there had been among the Protestants a dislike as it well, a dislike, I have to go for it. There was a divide between the, the um, and, and I remember my grandmother, you know, cursing some poor boy that must have given me a beating, I think, when I was a kid. And um, I remember she... She squawked as she ran off and she said, oh, he's probably a Catholic. <laughs> because there was but, this but, divide, wasn't there? It was. So here, here were the, the, the Chisholms as Catholic um, in Australia, but they were Christian. And the whole aspect of their faith was benevolence to do for those that had not. They refused to take money from the government um, and I think even large charities. And they spent their whole life and all of their wealth on looking after others. As you say, there were twice as many men as there were women. And so women then were, in some ways, vulnerable to abuse. And so when they arrived in Australia, established homes for destitute young women. And this is what Caroline Chisholm has become so well known for. You say 11,000 young women that she cared for in that time. And their work, which started, continued on beyond them. Yes, it did. Um, But they also extended the service to young men um, and to children as well. So the service grew. But after, I think it's about five or six years, they returned to Britain. And there they, they lobbied for people to support um, what the work they were doing in England. But also they started their first immigration program. I think I've got to think 38. I think there were probably a couple others before that with Lachlan Macquarie. But um, they started um, promoting coming to Australia, which was something, and Carolyn ended up speaking toward, to the House of Lords committees on two occasions. But Archibald, I think, doesn't get the mention that he should because it was he that then organised the ship's they, he paid for the ships to bring people to Australia. He organised all the business. He got, he got on a ship before the others had left and was here in, in Australia, in Sydney, to, to meet the ships. He devoted his whole life to support what Carolyn was doing and was right there with her. So, yeah. so they had actually they came to Australia. They began to work uh, with those vulnerable women. Uh, they then had a time when they returned to mm-hmm. England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they were back to Australia. The interesting thing here, and I don't know whether you've got a thought here, but uh, you note that they both died in obscurity yeah. in 1866. Perhaps says something about their humility, yeah. uh, but they used all their own money uh, to benefit those who were in need. Yeah. Is there something in that that shapes something of our Australian ethos about yeah. caring for the vulnerable? I think there is, and I mean, the other the two little points that need to be mentioned is that when Carolyn came back after their campaign in England to raise money to meet Archibald, she came back with £13,000. I think that's $25 million they came back with. 
The other thing is that over their period of, of service, they looked after some 40,000 people, not just 11. But with their money and, and, uh, and setting up their services, they then finally took time to set up their own store and look after their own six children. So the eldest son helped run the store, and as you said, they eventually moved to Melbourne. Um, and, I mean, there's only, having done it, there's only so much you can do before you're burning out yourself and caring for others. And it comes a time where you say, well, it's about time I cared for my own family. So, yes, they died in obscurity in Melbourne. But their life was a life of humility. It was a life of giving. They never sought political office. They never sought uh, major grants or accolades. And they died as most people who humble themselves before God do, just in the presence of God in their simple life. And if you want to see an image of Caroline Chisholm, check your $5 note. Yeah, open your wallet. <laughs> We're talking about Australia's history in his new book called What a Capital Idea, Australia, 1770 to 1901. You'll be able to find really enlarged those stories about some of those amazing identities that have shaped Australia and as we talked about the Chisholms still coming too we're going to be talking some more about David Unipon but before we do that Christopher Christmas is on its way and uh, I mentioned in the office here just a little earlier we're going to we're going to talk about Australia's very first Christmas service and you've been doing some research around that I wonder if you can take us back to 1788 the first fleet had already arrived uh, early in 1788, so the first Christmas wasn't coming until later that year. Give us a set up the story for us. Well, in searching original documents, the only reference I could find was in David Collins' diary. Now, David Collins was a captain, and he was also the judge advocate. He was the you know the, the top um, lawyer and judge, I think, for the colony. Only a young fellow, an Irishman. But anyway, Philip had a lot of confidence in him. And um, so he uh, did a lot of time writing up various bits and pieces about the state of the colony. And so I came across the date of, of December 25. And what he writes is actually quite simple. <coughs> Christmas Day was celebrated with the Reverend Richard Johnson performing his service with due ceremony and later that day, the officers joined the governor for refreshments and a dinner. And that's about all that was said. But there was a lot more that wasn't said about, about that day and the events. So I went to unpack it and I had such a great time. So let's just have a look at what was going on in the 1780s in Britain. As we probably mentioned before, um, it was a time of the Methodist Great Revivals. Now, um, Wesley travelled the, the distance of the earth around England in his life preaching and the revival of the hundreds of thousands of people's lives that were touched was just uncountable to tell you, you know, to just say. But they brought excitement to the faith and they brought music to the faith. There was nothing as a boy for me to stand among a group of Methodist ministers, 400 ministers, and you gave them a hymn. And my goodness, could they lift the roof. It was what the faith was about, was celebrating. So the, this music was already in the culture. And that's what they brought um, to Christian to Christian was excitement. But Christmas, Christian, Christmas Day was also affected. The church had 
three main uh, festivals a year, Christmas, Easter and Pentecost, Catholic Church, Anglican Church and other denominations. But what happened with Christmas was, with, with this revival, there was a move towards seeing Christmas as a time of intimacy, of family, as well as a time of song and celebration. It was also a time of being thankful for prosperity. But in the growing middle classes, they were thankful for what they had. It also was a time of being thankful and to give to others that didn't have. So this is where, again, the, the benevolence that was there in the Methodist Church and the Salvation Army came to express everybody giving gifts to those members of family and those are not. Now, you might be thinking uh, that a Christmas service is something that a handful of religious people might be doing on a Christmas day, uh, but I pick up from your notes uh, that actually it was mandatory for everyone to be in church. This is the way Australia started, mandatory, everyone was in church, and they would have been in church on Christmas day. Well, yes, it was. Later I read in, in Colin's diary that there'd been... So there'd been some that had not been attending church. And so the governor said, well, there's a penalty. If you don't attend church, you're going to lose two bags of flour. And if you're a superintendent, you'll lose four. So people were attending services on Sunday. But nobody was going to miss Christmas service. Um, and so think about that. You've got uh, 1,400, 1,500 people. They all got together on Christmas morning in the early part of the morning, summertime in Australia, People were sitting on the grass. This is the soldiers as well as the, the convicts and anybody else. Those that could stood in the shade of the trees and listened to the service as Reverend Richard Johnson gave his service and the sermon, as Colin said. And I have absolutely no doubt the Rabrigini standing around and watching and listening to what was going on. So it was in the context of people sitting on the grass. The officers are in uniform. Um, Johnson preaches with his enthusiasm about Christmas Day and they sang Christmas carols and they sang Silent Night, O come all ye faithful, hark the herald angels sing. Uh, and it went on. And it, it, so it was a celebration here on Christmas Day. So those wonderful carols, and we'll often reflect, these carols are not new inventions. They're not new productions. They're hundreds of yeah, we're years old. songs that are 250 years old. So the same sorts of songs that we might sing today, as you say, Silent Night, O Come All Ye Faithful, and uh, a few others you've got in your notes too, like Joy to the World yeah. and God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. These are the sorts of songs likely would have been sung on the very first Christmas in Australia. I have absolutely no doubt about it because, you see, that English tradition, um, because that's where they were. I mean, they, they, how many Christmases have you had before you have one in Australia? I mean, this was what we do on Christmas Day. And in passing the peace, as people would have all stood up to pass the peace, as the, we still have the same Anglican services, they would have all turned to each other and wished each other a Merry Christmas. And I think I put up on the post a picture of a kookaburra with a Santa's hat on it. And I couldn't resist that. You know, I feed six kookaburras every afternoon. And, you know, I thought oh. I might go out and get one, do it myself. But, <laughs> but Christmas in Australia. And as you say, uh, the governor yeah. would have invited uh, the dignitaries of the day to join him for dinner. Um, but you say, too, that uh, he would have had a desire to increase rations of flour, mm. but they were going through very hard times yeah. in that first year. 
but you think that it is more likely they would have had an increased ration of wine and rum oh, that would have been doubt. I mean, there seemed to be a breaking out of the rum and the, the cheap wine that the, the, <laughs> that the king told them to pick up in South Africa on their way. So here they were. And, and um, uh, it was Philip that actually uh, encouraged the first party in Australia, <clears throat> which was uh, February the 6th earlier that year. And uh, when everybody was ashore, he said, well, let them have some rum and some wine and then, and I'll go and hide on the ship so I'm not sort of around to watch what goes on. And the Aborigines stood in the trees and said, now that's a corroboree. <laughs> it was a phenomenal party. You know, so yes, they would have had some on Christmas Day as well. And uh, so you've got this mandatory attendance. Uh, you've got a lightheartedness. You've mm-hmm. got singing. And, of course, uh, as you say, what came from... Uh, the Wesleys, the excitement. Uh, mm. No doubt it was probably not, uh, you know, with organ playing and uh, singing a dirge, well, but a real celebration, as you say. Yeah, uh, there's something in that because um, was there an organ? Uh, on, the, on the First Fleet, Johnson had his piano brought out. So one has to sort of say, would it just sit there? I mean, why not get it, break it out on Christmas Day and see if it's in tune? There's no mention of it, but I can't see why you wouldn't. If you brought the thing all the way from England, why you wouldn't play it? And so that first Christmas Day, that has to be, in some sense, what we started talking about, just a foundation for the Christianity that permeates through Australia's society as Mm. it builds uh, from the time of colonisation. It's just an amazing Christian heritage. Well, I think when, when you read through history, I don't know why there is a, there's this inclination to secularise everything that you're reading, which my book doesn't. <coughs> um, faith is important to my life, to your life, and whether people believe or not, they do believe in them, in something, even if it's their own, hoping that you know they get through the day themselves. So um, our spiritual aspect is important, but we seem in history to, to wipe it off the pages. But faith was incredibly important to people, incredibly important, um, and 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 we've forgotten all of that. I mentioned earlier that the you mentioned the the hardship of the first year. And to uh, you know ask a question to enlarge on some of the things we're talking about with either the Chisholm's or Australia's first Christmas. But let me ask you about this really incredible identity, David Unipon, uh, born in eighteen seventy two, and an Aboriginal man. Uh, but what a champion what a what a uh, a giant uh, he was both as an intellect and as an inventor but also as a christian man how do you feel about david unipon well uh, david was um born in south australia and he was born on a port maclay mission his father was a congregational preacher in the mission um and so he grew up in the context of of christian devotion and, of course, from age seven, he started to receive an education. At 13, he went down to Adelaide and was got a job working in a household, came back and learned to be a boot maker, and later back down to Adelaide and back again, and he was there, learned accounting. But it was as his life developed, and as you just pointed out, it was his intellect and his desire to read that got him into inventing things. And, of course, uh, the, the great thing that he did was invent um, shears. And he came up with a device, a, a mechanism, that, that actually becomes the, the basis of what shearers today, and it's probably all digital, I suppose, 
but it, it um, he never got to get any a reward for it. But his design became the basis of, of uh, Shears for Shearing Sheep. So here he was with, I think, about 20 or something patents, and he just couldn't help himself but apply his, um, his mathematical, as it were, uh, brain to um, inventing things. And what an inspiration yeah. he is uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians today because sometimes uh, we're overwhelmed, even bombarded with the images uh, of oppressed Aboriginal Australians. But he stands out as one who went through his own issues around racism and such things, but was able to rise above that and make a tremendous contribution. And as a Christian preacher, what a powerful impact he made. He went to work for um, uh, for the uh, Bible Society, I think. I've got to remember what it was. But he was out looking for subscriptions. But he used, I uh, say, so travel the country. But he would use the opportunity to preach where he could and represent the Anglican Church in a number of events. But the thing about David was that he spoke exceptionally well and he wrote exceptionally well. So it was when people heard him talk, when he did um, move into the public uh, domain, that people couldn't fault his logic, his vocab, or his intelligence. And this is what led to the opportunities David had um, to not only uh, represent the Aboriginal people, but make a contribution to Australia. Do you know if any of his writings uh, are in libraries and such things? Uh, you know, and you say he developed a writing style uh, that was outstanding, just beautifully clear. I think you, in your notes, you, you say his writing style is similar to that of a John Milton or a John Bunyan. Uh, so, you know, can you just, uh, can you Google, do you think, um, oh, any well, of those, uh, you know, writings of David Unipon? I think you can. I think when I did the research, um, the, the writings are still available. So, I mean, I've got down here that he, he wrote uh, Hung Garda in uh, 1927, Kinney Gur, the native cat, in 20, 1928, and Native Legends in 1929. Um, but he was a poet as well, and I'm sure that there are those that have um, that um, have, have seen a resurrection, as it were, a republishing of his work. So, yes, go look. And as an inventor, this uh, really does characterise him. And uh, look, when we talk about people who invent things and they have a Christian faith, oftentimes we recognise this connection to our Creator and that inspiration that comes just to motivate uh, those things that you know cause an improvement in people's lives. Uh, you mentioned that he was the inventor of a modified hand piece for shearing that became the basis for modern sheep shears. But there's a whole lot of different things that he invented or had patents for. You said there was about 20. Uh, have, you, have you got any uh, thoughts on some of those ones that uh, that listeners might be able to oh, uh, to recognise? He did something to do with helicopters before uh, before anybody else had them in the air. And I thought, oh, he must have been going back to to um, some of the early inventors. Uh, I, I think um, Michelangelo or something had something similar. But here he was. I mean, he was just experimenting. Oh, but his his um, his helicopter was based on the dynamics of the boomerang. <laughs> and isn't but, that amazing? Yeah, it is. Because uh, the boomerang, which is such a an instrument that characterises uh, Aboriginal people, that uh, the aerodynamics of the boomerang actually may have been uh, something of an early uh. way of inspiring the invention of a helicopter. Uh, you mention another one, uh, the centrifugal motor. Uh, you mention a, yes, a multi-radial wheel and a mechanical propulsion device. Uh, <laughs> yeah, these things... These 
these things were, were way, way ahead of their time. Yeah, they were. And, I mean, he, he spent a long time with that um, that engine but never really got it um, anywhere. But, again, he just sort of um, found as a hobby almost. But it was, his, it was his intelligence to apply himself to these things, which was just part of the amazing aspect of this man and his life. And again, uh, while we were talking about the Chisholms, Caroline Chisholm, her image appears on our $5 note. Mm-hmm. So you can open your wallet or your purse and you can see a picture of Caroline Chisholm today. Uh, again, same with David Unipon, the $50 note. The $50 note. The thing with David was that um, he got to be influential to government policy and represent the um, the needs um the voice, oh, there's, the, there's the modern word, of <laughs> Aboriginal people around him. So he, he got respect and he got opportunities. But there was also a, a time when there was an, uh, the Australian Aboriginals League in 1938 decided that Australia Day was a day of mourning. And he took umbrage with that and thought it was just wrong and it wasn't going to serve the Aboriginal people or Australia of any good to think that um, the, the British come to Australia. But the other thing that I, I always... um think was interesting of David is that he actually proposed um, that a, a um, piece of land in Australia could be set off almost like a reservation and um, a piece of land could be um, separated in um, in uh, separate in central or northern Australia for Abri- Aboriginal people to live in which was probably I don't know I suppose it's worth considering if um, people would actually prefer that, I don't know. I think you're better off among uh, among all the wonderful services of living in the. Isn't in the it amazing? Time? Because uh, on the other side of the voice referendum, uh, which <laughs> might have divided Australians by race, uh, that might have been something that Aboriginal people could have been even today advocating for. Uh, this thought of you know an, an established uh, separate territory, but in some sense here. The Voice has shown that Australians voted for a non-divided Australia and so uh, every piece of Australia is just as much the property or the mm-hmm. uh, the ownership of both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. I mean, I, I mean obviously, that's a, that's a simplistic way of describing that, but in some sense, we're not divided. Uh, but he was proposing that way back in 1926. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, 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 it's a long time back to sort of say, well, if people want to be se- separated and have their own religion and society, why not give them a piece of land, you know, I suppose, and a bit of welfare. We could tax them or something every year or whatever it is. But um, yes, but it's fascinating with the, the situation we've just been through with this um, First Nations people political movement, which of course the name um, is there because they weren't necessarily Aboriginal people. But I have to say, as we look at Australian society today and the multiple r- racial heritage that we have as a nation, that all I can say is get over it. Whatever your race is, wherever you came from, our Australian um, ideology basically is it's a lovely day, get on with life, enjoy it, and, and get on with your neighbour. So I don't care where you come from. As long as you're doing the right thing, we're, we're all out to have a fair go. So this political movement that wanted to separate us, you can understand why the nation said, no, we're not up for it. And a little bit of wisdom too uh, from David Unipon, uh, mm. quoting from your book, uh, where his response to racism, and mm, yeah. uh, and you say, yes, he was subject to yep. racism, even denied accommodation, and yep. he was widely travelled, and so being turned away from staying at a, mm. an inn or a motel. 
but his response to racism, as you write, in Christ Jesus, colour and racial distinction disappear. Uh, And that that, that thought helped him as he Mm. faced his own racism issues, that there was not uh, black and white before God. Yeah, here's something. Can I just jump back to Christmas um, on this one? Because it's important. You know, uh, Christmas uh, in Australia and across England was not a day. It was a season, the 12 days of Christmas. And it ran from Christmas Day to Epiphany. Epiphany? Epiphany? What was the Epiphany? Oh, that was by tradition the day that the three wise men came to visit the child Jesus. The significance of this right there in the beginning was the gospel was going to be for the world. The world had come to Jesus. And here we are as a Christian, one cannot, as God is not, as Christ is not, you one cannot be racist. And the thing I find sitting in the Catholic Church is you, suddenly, you, know, you feel like you're sitting at, a, at an international airport. I mean, everybody's there with you. You can't be a Christian um, and be racious. And that, that, that is something that should be fundamental in our country today. And no doubt uh, racial divisions and disputes are not all uh, finished with yet. In fact, some might be saying uh, they're going to be continuing to be on the rise and therefore this connection of our Christian heritage, even through the likes of a David Unipon and the wisdom yeah. that we might glean about uh, how we see one another from a biblical Christian foundation, these things are all going to be very important, very useful in coming debates. I, I think the thing with mentioning the Chisholms as well as David was that he was simple people who got a calling. They certainly got a vision. They had tenacity. Uh, they had dedication, and here were simple people that have risen to be on our, our currency by the fact that they applied themselves um, to needs um, and opportunities as they presented them. And just let's just conclude a conversation about David Unipon because you say he received what was called a coronation medal. Mm. Uh, He was 81 years of age, and uh, on the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, he was being recognised. So if you're wanting this sort of context of our Australian history, he was someone who was very, very highly recognised for the good work that he did in Australia's development. And that leads us to to someone else who was very highly recognised, and uh, you've been doing some work too with a lady named Daisy Bates, uh, one of your favourite uh, yeah, identities is. of Australian history, too. Yes, yeah, she is. Um, she she um, it, it rises to my highest level of admiration. It's highest level of admiration because, again, of her dedication, a simple woman who applied herself to a situation that was nothing less than challenging and did something that others that others wouldn't. She uh, came out um, to Australia in her, in her 20s, uh, I think about uh, in, 80, in 1884 at age 21. Um, she arrived in Townsville in Queensland, um, again a Catholic woman, and uh, she married uh, Edward Henry Morant, also known as Breaker Morant. Now, he was a station hand, was known for breaking horses, but he was also... Um, uh, caught stealing pigs and a bit of a drunkard and whatever else. Of course, he joined the army and went off to the to the um, Boer War, which is where, of course, we know 
of him in in, in his um in his capacity as a soldier in South Africa. Yeah. But Daisy went on to marry another horsebreaker, and I don't think, as I read of, of his life, that he was much better than the fellow she had already divorced. Going back to England and coming back again, um, she met the bishop, a uh, Catholic bishop in um, in Perth, and travelled with him to Broome, and there uh, saw Aborigines for the first time and what was happening. And so she uh, dedicated her life. She lived for 14 years among the Aborigines. She lived as a justice of a peace on the, on the South Australian, Western Australian border, um, and just she had two two things that she was concerned about. One was representing the Aborigines, and as a journalist, she wrote a tremendous number of articles. But she's also known because she can I keep going. Yes, she, yes, she also sure. known because um, she got an invitation to attend a Sydney conference uh, to talk about her life among the Aborigines. But she was in the she was out on the on the Nullarbor Plain. And she got a camel, and she and the camel walked all the way to Port Augusta and there got on the train and went to the conference in Sydney. So she became known, and articles were written about her, you know, the woman with the camel as she'd walked across the desert to get to this conference in the one dress that she owned. When we talk about Christian faith here, Mm. whether it's Protestant or Catholic, uh, when we discuss Christian faith and the hardships that were faced by pioneers in this nation, and when you talk about, you know, going by camel across the Nullarbor Mm. Plain, well, there's something very significant about the resilience and the tough mindedness uh, that is, in some ways, and I'll get your thoughts here enhanced by an appreciation of this spirituality, this working under God, this mission endeavor. Mm. How do you describe that as we talk about even all of these different identities we're talking about today, just this fact that this Christian foundation is in the thinking of these wonderful identities that have helped shape Australia, but that, that resilience often will come from their faith. You see, have a look at the three people we're talking about. Um, the, the Chisholms, um, a simple background, find themselves in a situation, um, large families, and seek to care for those that don't have. <coughs> David, an Aboriginal man who's a Christian, again, in applying his faith and his own abilities, finds he has opportunities to be none other than himself as a Christian, as an Aborigine, to speak his mind and to speak his heart. Daisy Bates, who is a writer, lives among the Aborigines, writes endless amounts of articles um, for them, to, for people to understand uh, them. She actually gets commissioned by the Western Australian government to write up the culture, etc., etc. Um, so it's people. And the, I mean, where does the challenge come for, for you, even you and me? I mean, w- you know, when the, the, the hand of God touches you, you can do no other. There's been times when you just ha- you know that this is what you ought to do. May I give an example, a yes. good one? Yes. I went off to America. I, I met a, a, um, a beautiful American woman. Uh, it was a fellow in my 20s. I thought, what am I doing myself? Off I, off I go to America and I'll, I'll get a PhD. And um, I went to Washington and I, I'd had politics in my blood, my family in Sydney. But when I saw Washington, it was, what would you call it? It was, it was me the excitement, the opportunities, the challenges. 
I went back and they said, if you stay in Washington, you will never finish your PhD. Only one in 19 people who get through the exams ever finish their dissertation. One in 19. So I went back. I worked hard. I finished my dissertation. I got my degree and I came back to Washington. That's what I wanted to do. But I was Australian. I was, <laughs> and as a friend said to me, uh, a southern accent, he said, you're never going to get a job in this town, boy, for four reasons. One, uh, you're too old. You're 33. Two, you're married. Um, th- uh, three, you're too well educated. And four, you're foreign. You're not going to get a job in this town. But I had the hand of God on me and I walked the streets. I walked the corridors. I literally wore out a pair of shoes with holes in the bottom of shoes and the bottom off the, off the elbows of my jacket. I can't believe it. But I was going to get a job. And when I did finally get a break, a, a congressman came along and instead of me having to wait five years to get a senior position and on a committee, five months Five months and I was working on a committee because, and people, a, a fellow came to me, he said, I'll give you the money, go home. You, you're never going to survive in Washington. And I wouldn't take the money. I had a wife and a child, but that's what I was called to do. And I did it. So I can understand these people who dedicate themselves, whether it's living with the Aborigines, uh, speaking on behalf of, of the gospel or giving to people and children in need. Because once it touches you, you can't resist. And we might also reflect on the way that uh, there is an, a sympathy and an empathy that also drives uh, the Christian-hearted leader to do what they do because they empathize with mm-hmm. the needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they recognize that they are vulnerable. They recognize that there are the poor and they want to serve uh, just as we have been served by our Lord and mm-hmm. Savior, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a care for people. But, uh, of course, uh, also a, an involvement uh, working alongside him in his mission. Dr. Christopher Reynolds has been our guest this past hour. We've been talking through some of the amazing stories of those great identities that have helped shape Australia and the, as you said earlier, Christopher, the heart and soul of who we are. And it very much is founded on those issues of our Christian faith and those who've gone before you can get a hold of Christopher's new book. It's called What a Capital Idea. Oh, if if, if people call in today or order the book in the next uh, week or so, if they go to buy the book, I'll give them a 25% discount for Christmas. So when they go to buy the book, they'll come to a, a thing that says voucher code. If you put in 1770, what is it? 1770, you'll, you'll get the book for $80 instead of 109 I'll give you a 25 percent discount on a Christmas special. I imagine that's if they're getting that through your website. Yeah, through the uh, website. So reynoldlearning.com, reynoldlearning.com, R-E-Y-N-O-L-D, learning.com. Uh, Christopher, always great to get your insights. Let's do this again sometime in the early new year. Appreciate you very much. All the best with the launches that are coming up in February uh, on the Gold Coast, in March, in Brisbane. You've got other launches that are coming up for your new book uh, in Sydney and in Hobart. Uh, Outstanding book. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts once again with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. 
Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 